Love is everything. The rest of the, there's nothing else that matters. The rest of life is bullshit, only love. So if you have a point of view of what you're actually trying to make, especially with an experienced actor, they know what you want. And then it gives them freedom to like not make choices that are out of the director's comfort zone and they can do whatever the heck they want, you know? And uh, even if you're the most technically gifted actor in the world, everybody always gets in trouble. Everybody always, there's something happens and you, and you just try to be there and uh, you know, through a series of permission givings, make sure the actor is comfortable and that it's okay for him to dig deep and be as authentic as he can be. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Nick Cassavetes is on the show today. Nick is an actor, screenwriter, and director. Nick's dad, John Cassavetes, was a pioneer of independent cinema in the 70s and 80s writing and directing classics like Gloria and Woman Under the Influence, both starring Nick's mother, Gina Rollins. With both of Nick's parents receiving Academy Award nominations, Nick had a lot to draw from for inspiration. But as you'll hear in this interview, his path into the arts was a bit more circuitous than you might think. I've been a fan of Nick's work for decades, starting with his role as Dietrich Hassler in the movie Face Off with Nicolas Cage and John Travolta but I began appreciating him as a screenwriter after seeing Blow with Johnny Depp in 2001. Blow is one of those extremely rewatchable films, like Casino or Goodfellas. I watched it again to prepare for the interview, and it still holds up as one of the great drug crime genre movies. In this interview, Nick tells us how he got hired to write that script at a time in his career when he knew very little about screenwriting. Nick has also directed some impressive and even iconic films. You can check out his filmography on IMDb, but a few noteworthy films he directed are John Q. starring Denzel Washington, The Notebook starring Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams, as well as Alpha Dog starring Justin Timberlake, Emile Hirsch, Amanda Seyfried, and Chris Kincaid, who was interviewed on episode 30 of this podcast. I rewatched all of these films leading up to the interview with Nick, and they're just as great today as they were when they were released. So if you have some downtime as the pandemic drags on, I recommend going back and watching or re-watching these films. One of Nick's most recent acting roles was Tattoo Joe in The Hangover 2. And just like with his role in Face Off, there's a story about how he found that role, or more accurately, how the role found him. It's stories like this that make this interview a bit longer than most, but I promise it's worth sticking around until the end. I have to admit, I felt pretty intimidated going into this interview. My friend Chris Kincaid, who has known Nick for decades, assured me that Nick was sweet and easygoing. But Nick's on-screen personas, his tattooed, physically imposing nature, and his no-bullshit personality made me wonder whether I could pull this off. Despite my trepidation going in, Nick was a fantastic guest. He's a natural storyteller, he was generous with his time, and his unique perspective on acting, writing, and directing made for engaging and compelling conversation. So let's jump right into my talk with Nick Cassavetes. Nick Cassavetes, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know we had some technical difficulties getting started here, but uh, this might be our new normal here with the uh, pandemic style of meeting, huh? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I'm a tech dope, but, uh, you know, the pandemic is something. I've been in quarantine for, I think this is seven days now. I haven't been outside. How are you and your family doing, by the way? 
Well, I have a, a sick daughter, and uh, so I, I don't see those two kids I, in person. We talk all the time. And I have uh, my youngest daughter who's living with me, but uh, we're the only two ones here right now. My girl went to Las Vegas to be with her parents, and uh, but she'll be back soon. But basically, we've just been staying inside. Yeah. So what what is happening right now in Hollywood, in the film and, t- and television industry, now that everything seems to be kind of at a standstill? Is there anything creative happening behind the scenes? Uh, people are talking like you and I are, you know, remotely and, and trying to get stuff done? Or is it basically a shutdown? No, everything's shut down on the outside. But I think everybody's uh, is how can we uh, make money during the shutdown? How can we keep going? How can we be creative? Uh, you know, I personally, I'm a writer, so I have lots to catch up on and that's fine. But, uh, uh, I think that when this is over, if indeed it ever is over in a timely manner, that people will be, you know, raring to work and, uh, make money and to be creative. And we just keep plugging along, except it's at home. Well, um, I've been doing a lot of research, uh, getting ready for this interview. And I, I have to say, uh, I've followed your career since the probably i would say the 90s um i really wasn't tuned in too much to hollywood films in the 80s but there's so much to unpack here and what i'd like to start off with is asking you about the time frame of when you decided to get into athletics basketball in particular and why you made that choice at least based upon my research why you chose to avoid the film industry at first and how you got brought back into it? That's a pretty legitimate question. Uh, Both mom and dad were in the film business. Tell you a little story. My dad and mom met at uh, American Academy Dramatic Arts. They were both actors. They both became relatively successful young. My dad wanted to be a filmmaker. He started directing studio films. A lot of people don't know this. And on a film called <laughs> A Child is Waiting, uh, which starred Burt Lancaster and Judy Garland about some uh, mentally disabled kids, he did a film for, I don't forget what studio, but the producer was Stanley Kramer. And he loved the film. And back then they had these kind of things where they would be, it would be not a test screening like they have today, but it would be kind of a preview screening where everybody dress up in suits and go to like the Cary Grant theater and sit there and applaud or whatever. And my dad turned in the version that to to play on Friday and little did he know that Kramer had gone in and recut the entire film over the weekend. So when the film (laughs) for the film played, Dad, who's nuts, uh, got up and walked to the screen kind of like in a daze and put his hands through the screen and tore it. And Kramer came up behind him and said, hey, John. And, you know, he dumped him right in front of about 500 people. And so uh, <laughs> dad didn't work anymore. And so we all moved to California and mom took Peyton place and supported the family. And dad... Uh, started writing stuff that he wanted to do for himself. They would still hire him as an actor, but uh, after a while, but so he was kind of forced to be an independent filmmaker. A lot of people don't know that. So basically, you know, we didn't have a lot of money uh, or not enough to make films. So he made them very inexpensively. And that meant having everybody staying in the house and, you know, like 9 trillion people over for every dinner. And it was a giant pain in the ass. 
you know, my sisters are a lot younger than me and I was alone a lot because they'd go off and make movies and stuff. So I just felt kind of, I don't know, it, I was their thing and not my thing. And uh, when I found basketball, I was pretty good at it and I was real big and, uh, you know, I wanted to be good at something. So I chased that. Yeah. So when you decided to go in that direction with basketball, what brought you back into the direction of, of television and film? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of a circuitous route. I uh, I snapped my Achilles playing basketball. So it, it was a kind of a career-ending type of injury back then. That They didn't have the kind of stuff to rehabilitate that you do now. And to be really quite honest, I was... I thought I knew everything as a kid. And uh, so when that happened, I I quit school and I came back and got an apartment in Los Angeles. And I, I worked at Sears for a couple of years as a janitor, you know, just because I was mad and I could and I was on my own and I could have some freedom. And actually, Sears was a cool company to work for. And it wasn't until I knew, and my parents had gone to American Academy Dramatic Arts in New York, and I found out there was an American Academy Dramatic Arts in Los Angeles, and I was like, I wonder if I could get in there, and then I knew a pretty girl that was going there, and I was like, eh, let me go out and check this out, and I went out, and the people at uh, AADA were very nice. My parents were, you know, who I wasn't speaking to back then a lot, well, they were they were happy that I would had made that choice, and I really didn't know that I liked movies or anything, or like theater or acting or anything. But when I got there, I really loved it. You know, it was uh, it was something that you could spend a lot of time trying to get better, and uh, it always has tripped me out, like trying to understand why people do things and putting myself in their positions and uh, role playing, if you will. I, I really loved it, and. Uh, I wasn't even that great, but I, I really loved it and I worked hard at it and it, and it gave me a, you know, a sense of self-esteem. And w when you were at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, did you, did you feel yourself being pulled in a particular direction, whether it was acting or writing or directing, because you've done all of those things in your career, but what were your, what were your thoughts when you were at the school? Man, I was going to be the greatest actor in the world. I deserved it. Both my parents were good actors. I came from it. I thought, oh, I got this biologically in every other which way. And it turned out I was I was okay. You know, I I, I would hire me as a director, but uh, I was super tall, and all the good roles went to uh, guys who looked like Tom Cruise, which was cool. And he's very good. And so I spent about I don't know, like I don't even know, ten, twelve years, thirteen years playing the sidekick going, hey, buddy, what are you talking about? She loves you, man. You got to go get her. You know, being the kind of like the the best friend sidekick or being some kind of like evil guy that wants to, uh, and all of the things that were like the movies needed, but I didn't feel anything about those things. And it just didn't feel like a, a job for a grown man, you know? So it wasn't until much later that I was away on a film by a guy named Jim Chambers. And I don't even know where that film is. It was a beautiful film. He wrote it. It was all in poetry. And he financed it himself. And we're up in Northern California. And I had a lot of downtime. And uh, I had done some television thing and had an agent for some reason. But, uh, you know, but for the first, I'd say, three, four years, I, I mainly, you know, we all read drama log and said, you know, where's the plays out there? Back there, you could do equity waiver theater. And, you know, I, I did that for a while and 
Then I went to New York and I did uh, Off-Broadway and I got a job at uh, West Beth and I didn't have a place to live in New York. And West Beth was kind of a housing community in Chelsea back then. They had two stages, a little stage and a big stage. And we had the big stage. In fact, the stage was so big that it was set up like an apartment. So I kind of was the stage manager and lived there. And uh, it was uh, great until I got caught and then uh, I was fired. And, uh, but, you know, basically it was chasing down job after job. And back then, as long as you had something to eat at night, it was cool. We were chasing artistic experiences and, and, uh, and falling in love each time. And when you were um, in acting school, did you have any influences outside your own family? Because obviously uh, you grew up in, in an acting and filmmaking family that had to be formative, but were you looking outside of your own family for ideas on directions to go? You know, it's weird. Maybe it's because, you know, I had some kind of difficulties with my parents when I was young and that they were right. I was wrong by the way, but uh, my overall sense was, I wanted to be left alone to find out about things on my own and process it in my own way. So even till right now, while I enjoy many other people's work and so much so that I'm jealous, like uh, Manchester by the Sea, I always say like, why didn't I think of that idea? Why didn't I write that movie? It's so great. Even if I love something, I'm not really, I'm not trying to bite it. You know, I'm not trying to be, I don't know, being an artist, you get to feel like you feel. And that's the thing it of the it of why you do it or for me. So I don't have a lot of like kind of artistic influences. I have a lot of people I really like. For me, it all comes back to the beginning. And I try to process it through my stupid brain and uh, see where it goes from there. So coming out of that household, which had to be just a, a hotbed of creativity and all of these actors that are kind of traipsing in through your house, you know, shooting these independent films with your dad and your mom in your own house. And Peter Falk, I understand, was, was a family friend. What, was there a point when you realized how unique and special that upbringing was? And I imagine it came with its set of downsides as well. But w when you kind of look back on it and go, wow, that was pretty special. I guess the best way I can answer that is like, you always knew you were around something special with that. There was, he was magic. There was just certain people there just like magic and people are drawn to them. It's infuriating when you're a young man and you're like, I want someone to pay attention to me or whatever. But he was also super generous with me and always be like, he always would pretend I was his number two and I had his back. And, you know, I was a great number two, but, uh, I don't think we ever had a conversation saying like, Nick, son, if you ever make a film, make sure you remember or do it like this. Or, this is important. Nothing like that. My dad was really interested in what he was doing like this. My, my bedroom was the edit room. Many, many times he would wake me up in the middle of the night, two, three in the morning, and he'd be like, Nick, come downstairs. I'd be like, what's up? It's like he'd tell me what he wanted to do and like he would tell a story and if you didn't like it, he'd change the story in the middle and then he'd say, go up and find that piece of film with your mom scratching your nose and you'd be like, it, it wasn't marked. You'd be like looking through film and it wasn't, we didn't even, I didn't even have a flatbed just on reels and loops and stuff. But uh, then mom would come downstairs at four in the morning going, what the hell is everybody doing? Go to bed, go to bed. 
but my dad never slept. And so <laughs> that means I never slept. And so like when I was a kid, a real kid, like 13, 14, we, I started working for him, you know, and like we would like back then he had movies and they were in bins and cans and there weren't a bunch of Abco cinema centers and movie plexes back then. So what we did is we sat in the office and I called every friggin' theater in the world and said, Hey, you know, I got a John Cassavetes film here. Are you interested in it? And they'd be like, yeah, John, give me the phone. And he'd make the deal. And uh, I guess the kind of the come to moment I had, there's a theater on Wilshire and La Cienega. I think it's now called the Savoy. It's probably a, it's probably a, a, a legit theater now, but it used to be a movie theater. And dad's offices were up above that. He had the, the floor above that. And in Los Angeles, when Woman Under the Influence first came out, that's the only theater he could get. And that's because, you know, he knew the guy in the building. And it, for whatever, it caught the zeitgeist. There was a runaway hit. And dad and I would go down every, every show because he was convinced the guy, the theater guy was you know, stealing from him. And we'd count the people going in the theater. And it was, it was just insane. There was lines around the block every show. And back then you were like, maybe this is something, you know, like it really was something. And that's kind of when he, he was very, very respected uh, in the film community before that. But I think that's when like, a lot of people in mainstream America started to, that was the, the movie that, that brought it out. He made a lot of money for on that film. And, uh, you know, that was, I was 14 at the time, you know, I was gone the day I turned 16, I left the house, you know, so I was only there for a couple more years before, you know, I was out on the road doing my own thing. What were you doing at age 16, leaving the house? Getting kicked out. My mother brought in a couple of suitcases and said, it's time. <laughs> she was absolutely right. I was, uh, you know, so I uh, moved out, went to school, finished high school, got a job at Evelyn Wood Speed Reading, and then went off to college. And what were you doing at Evelyn Wood Speed Reading? I, I know my dad used to read or, you know, do El Evelyn Wood Speed Reading stuff, but I, I've never done it myself. It's actually very boring. Uh, the, when I got there, it was cold calling like, Hey, how would you like a free introductory lesson? Have your kid do better in school. And they hang up on, but then I worked with some guys back then they were, they would go to schools and they would give the people that got people into the introductory lesson, 75 bucks a piece for showing up to the introductory lesson, because when they signed them, they would bleed them for lots of money. And I was like, you're giving 75 bucks a person just to show up. I was like, how about I'm going to quit this phone job. And what I did was I printed up 25,000 flyers. And when they went to a school and I just illegally littered the school with flyers, one on every car, one under every door, on every class. I mean, like if the cops are always chasing us. But the first time, like 300 people showed up, I was like, rich, you know, like this. And so we, we did okay for a little while until they decided they didn't want to pay us anymore. But, uh, and then I went off, to, uh, then I went off to, to college. What did you get from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts that you still have with you today that you still use, if, the, if that's even possible to, to answer? I was very, very lucky. The, the, the school back then was run by a guy named Mike Toma, who was a genius and knew how to, not only did he have all the secrets, but he knew how to reach young kids and teach them that it was okay to... Uh, to love what they were doing. And uh, he was a big influence in my life. And uh, they had uh, a number of teachers, even though she hated me, a woman named Georgia Phillips taught me a lot about retaining 
you know, when you listen, we're doing a scene called uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? A lot of the dialogue by Tennessee in that is, is argumentative. And it's in a, a lesson I, t- I tell actors all the time. It's just because someone's yelling at you doesn't mean you need to be yelling at them. You have your own thought process. You have your own thing that you're going through. And in that particular piece, uh, Virginia, uh, Martha is yelling at him. And uh, he keeps his calm because he knows that's what infuriates her the most. If she can, if she can get him into an argument, then she wins. And uh, it's just little nuances of behavior, showing you how to love material, how to not be afraid to work on character, because the more you work, even though it seems like it's never going to get there and it's all fraudulent, that uh, that is the process. And that's what separates the uh, authentic from the not authentic. So uh, I really liked it. I, I really, really liked it. Even though it wasn't really that great. I just loved the work. Now, I've, I've had the pleasure of actually talking to actors who have worked with you in the past. And one comment that I heard from, I won't say his name, uh, you might be able to guess who this is, but uh, one comment I heard from one actor was that you do not spend your time in kind of shifting forward to your directing approach. And as you work with actors, you don't spend your time in video village, that you are there with the actors and that you, you connect with them in a way that other directors don't. Does that sound familiar to you or, or make sense in terms of your approach to directing? Well, I mean, it's very kind, and uh, I, I, I don't even have a video village in, on movies. I, I just invite everybody to come and watch, because I think on a small box right there is kind of there, there's a lot of falseness. Even if you're looking at it and you think that, like, you're seeing the real thing, you know, a lot of guys, are directors, and they're fine directors, are very shoddy directors, and they use toys, and they make things look incredible, and they have special effects, and and I think that those, I, I'm, I marvel at what they're able to do. But I mean, that's not what I do. Like, I always joke around, like, what's my movie about? Two people sitting in a room talking about how they feel, you know? And uh, if you make movies like that, the, mo- the most beautiful shot is an actor who's uh, dialed in. So, yeah, I do spend a lot of time with actors, and I'm sure that, that, that most of them wish I wouldn't. I'd love to talk to you about individual films, but one kind of broad observation I've made studying your work is that you seem to have a really good eye for new young talent. And I'm talking about films like The Notebook with Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams, Alpha Dog with um, Emile Hirsch and Justin Timberlake and Amanda Seyfried and all of these people that really got their start and became very well known through your films. And I was wondering if that's something that you knew you had an act for at the time and, and you really got excited about and focused on that, or if it's just kind of unfolded organically for you that way. It's organic. You know, I mean, I mean, I've worked with movie stars too, but once people get to be big movie stars, they don't want to work with me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I always, I've never been fearful of working with uh, younger actors. I feel like they, they're wide open and, and want to please and will do the work and, and a lot of them are ridiculously talented. And uh, for me, it's always lovely working with the uh, young people. But it's also great working with like a master. I've worked with Denzel. I've worked with Sean Penn. I've worked with Jenna. I've worked with Depardieu. I've worked with a lot of people that are really fine at their craft. And some of that process is explaining how you see things and what you and why you're what the director's point of view is. And because like every time you do a movie, the most boring thing is, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. It's like 
when I'm an audience, I'm like, yeah, I understand what happens, but what the fuck does it mean? Like, what do we, you know, why am I watching this? Right. And if you're smart as a director, you're like, my first movie was about a woman who's getting older and she feels like she has no more, you know, worth in the world, you know? So we have all these scenes play out, but really that's the through line, you know? Right. And the second film is she's so lovely and there's a lot of things that happen kind of crazy and like this, but really what it wanted to say was love is everything. The rest of the, there's nothing else that matters. The rest of life is bullshit, only love. So if you have a point of view of what you're actually trying to make, especially with an experienced actor, they know what you want. And then it gives them freedom to like not make choices that are out of the director's comfort zone and they can do whatever the heck they want, you know? And, uh, even if you're the most technically gifted actor in the world, everybody always gets in trouble. Everybody always, there's something happens and you, and you just try to be there and uh, you know, through a series of permission givings, make sure the actor is comfortable and that it's okay for him to dig deep and be as authentic as he can be. It's interesting that you say that. You, you said, well, and this happens and then that happens and then this happens and that's not interesting. And I agree with that, but also what I'm observing with your films, and I saw this too with um, A Woman Under the Influence, is that you're not afraid, I mean, and that, of course that was your dad's film, but, yes. um, but you're, you're not afraid to sit with a moment for much longer than you would think a Hollywood director would be clipping along at. And I think that there's, there's a tendency because of our attention spans these days mm-hmm. to, to kind of like, all right. Then they say that, and then we move to the next scene, and now they're in the next room, and now they're in the car. But I've noticed that even as far back as Unhook the Stars in your, you know, your very early films, you sit with a scene for as long as it takes, and you're not pressured to kind of move that thing along because it's the emotion of the moment, I think, that, that I'm getting. When I'm watching the, the film as an audience member, that's what I appreciate is your, your confidence in that moment and staying there. You know... I hate to say it, like everyone thinks that, I, that I am, other people have styles. I don't have a style. For me, it's all situational. I was doing a film called John Q, and I had the legendary Dee Dee Allen as a, an editor. She's the famous story about Dee Dee is she was cutting a film, and they had a screening, and back then you cut on film, so you, you, you were playing a dupe, which was like a kind of a, a, a shitty positive of a film that you would play just for screenings, but you could actually cut on the positive, right? And there was a, a film side and then there's a, a, a sound side. And you can cut the sound side very, very thin just to take out pops and stuff like that. You can cut it real thin. So she was doing a film with, I guess, Lumet. And they, the, room, <laughs> the legend is they were missing a piece of, of critical sound. It was gone. And they were just about to do it because they'd been cutting in like this. And the legend is that they found it in her hair. So it gives an impression of like just chop suits and film flying all over the place. I always loved it. But she was. He's maybe the most well-respected editor who ever lived. And it was my first film with him. And she kind of looked at me cross-eyed like, I don't know about this guy, because I was always kind of And we had Denzel in the film, and it was a film about a, a sick kid and, you know, a guy that didn't have any insurance. And she always, she was very, very particular about nobody coming in and what she used to call brown bagging, like cutting over or anything like this. But one morning I got there before she did and I sat at the thing. I didn't really know how to use the, it's the first film I did on like video. So I didn't know how to work the machine very good. So there was a scene where Washington is bent over his kid and I had written a speech for him about like, 
he's about to kill himself and he wanted to tell his kid in like five minutes everything he knew about life. Maybe he would hear it because he's going to be dead. And he gave a remarkable, remarkable performance in that uh, thing. I mean, like, oh my God. Uh, and I, I watched the scene and it wasn't just like, you know, it didn't hit the gong for me. I wasn't like, yeah, like this. So I started to like put it together and I just like kind of left it on Washington because, and for like an unbearably long time, just like this. And just, he became emotional, but we, we had the chance to become emotional with him and gave us the time. I mean, like I care, cut back to the kid like twice during the thing. And then we got back to him later, but on the crucial point, it said, oh, it taught me that lesson about like, you know what? If we're trying to do something and we want someone to feel something, we've got to give the audience time to feel it, you know? You rush it through, uh, it may seem more polished and put together, but sometimes you don't need polish and put together. Sometimes you need to feel, like, you know, a pit in your throat and a lump in your stomach, or maybe I got that backwards. But uh, anyway, um, she came in and screamed at me. She said, you know, you're not great. You could be great, but you're not great. But she agreed with the cut and... Uh, I guess I don't want to get into that story, but it was it kind of reminded me about what you were talking about. Yeah. About just sitting with, you know, sitting with a moment for longer than maybe you're comfortable with, but really what you're getting, I think the payoff is a more robust emotion and authentic emotion in the moment, as opposed to, you know, this is just plot, plot, plot. Let's just next scene, next scene, next scene. And um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun really getting to know your work after all these years of, of seeing them intermittently, but I've kind of, sorry for boring you. No, I, cr I crash course to uh, Nick Cassavetti's crash course over the last week getting ready for this. Yeah. And I noticed on your IMDB that you actually were in the movie mask. You played TJ. Yeah. And Bogdanovich directed that movie and I was a big kind of strapping young kid. And he said, come on, you'll be one of the motorcycle guys. And I thought I was going to go down for a day, but he had me there the whole time. And we had a really good time. I mean, Eric Stoltz, what an actor. Ooh. Oh my gosh. I loved that movie. I loved it. I saw it in the theaters. Maybe the most overlooked actor of that period of time. He was just a genius. Yeah. Got a weird story. We were doing The Notebook, like right, right after that week, after John Q, I believe that my next movie was The Notebook. And I... I, I you know, everybody was like, hey, buddy, now you don't have Washington in this film. What are you going to do? So we got this film and I read it and I was like, oh, God, I can't believe I'm going to do this film. Because when I first got it, it was like, you know, I love you. I love that you love me. I love that you love that you love me. I love it. It just was sappy, right? And I went to the studio and I said, guys, I mean, like for me, when I'm really in love, all I ever do is fight. They're like, do whatever you want. Just please make this movie for us. So I was like, all right. They even let me hire Ryan and, and Rachel and were very sweet about it. But I had a, a studio executive named Lynn Harris, who was very, very smart, and a producer named Mark Johnson, who was legendary, came up with Barry Levinson. And they were very, you know, the movie had been with Jimmy Sheridan and it had been with another director, it had been with Spielberg, and they hadn't been able to get it the way they wanted to. So, of course, they went with a discount version of me. And yeah, yeah. The idea was that the people that had been working on it all this time, probably correctly so, felt they knew the material better than I did. But, you know, I've always had an overbelief in my ability, so I started digging in. And it became a very performance-oriented piece. I get to work with Jimmy Garner. I got to work with Ryan and Rachel and Mom. And it was what I wanted to do. My editor is Alan Heim at this point. He doesn't like anything, but he was like, eh, we might have something here. So we cut it together. And the studio execs looked at it and they were like, it's a good film, but I didn't even cry. I was like, 
is the whole point of the movie just to cry? And they're like, yes, you fucking idiot. I was like, oh, <laughs> give me a second. I'll be right back. And uh, I went back in with Alan. We did, you know, a day's worth of work. And after that, this is the cut that you see in the movie right now. And how you do that is just, you know, through breadth of experience and then just make terrible things happen one after the other and just don't let up until people like run from the theater screaming and yelling. But, uh, <laughs> you did make people cry though. I mean, I mean, I know people that, man, I saw, the, I saw the first cut and I started crying. I was like, this is fucking stupid. You're so egotistical to be crying at your own work. Oh my God. <laughs> but you know, it was a, it was a great story and the kids were great and the old guys were great and everybody kind of, you know, it was a wish fulfillment movie. Everybody wants to be loved so much that, you know, that you'll spend your whole life with them and hopefully die in the same bed as them. But, uh, were, were you surprised by the, the reception of the film and, and eventually the cult status that it reached? Because I know my kids were just watching that. I mean, they had the DVD and they were watching it almost on repeat huh. uh, for like six months to a year after the DVD came out. Well, funny things. We... We're going to release it. New Line, God bless them. Uh, and God bless his, the studio exec. He's, he runs Warner Brothers now. His name was Toby Emmer. And God bless him. He really got behind the film. And, you know, what they do is they, everybody in the, the film community, when they have movies, they have dates. Like you get them like six months out and then you prep for them and you do your advertising and the publicity and all your marketing and stuff like that. And it's, they're very important. And you can't move them because they mess up everything. Well, on our date, we were free and clear, except for a week before we opened, Mike Moore, God bless him, released Fahrenheit 9-11 on the same day as us. And he did like $7 trillion his first week. And we did, I think, like $6 million, considered a disaster, right? <laughs> just a disaster. Just like everyone was like, well, sorry, Nick. It was a good film. We just got unlucky, blah, blah, blah. But you know, like the little edge and, and this, the reviews came out and they slayed us. And they're like, Nick Cassavetes is like, his father should be embarrassed. This movie's like cotton candy and saccharine sweet and blah, blah, blah. It's kind of just like, we're bitchy about it. Uh, you know, I basically didn't like, it. but second week we, you know, you're supposed to lose 50% and we did another 6 million. And then the next week we did another 6 million and we played for 11 months in a row. And so it never was, never thought of as kind of like a hit movie until much, much later. And I think the part where it like came to me, what we had was a buddy of mine calls me up. He goes, uh, this, you have to remember, this is in uh, 2002. He's like, you ever heard of Facebook? I'm like, no. He's like, <laughs> it's a college thing where college kids can talk to one another. I'm like, yeah, so what? He said, your movie just got voted the greatest movie of all time. I said, well, first of all, they're wrong. And second of all, wow, uh, that's, that's kind of cool. And then when that happened, all the kids went to see it. And we actually started doing more business. And then about two or three months later, God bless him, Clint Eastwood is on NPR radio. And it's going to be Oscar time. And of course, I thought that at least our composer and our cinematographer should have been recognized for the movie as well as the actors. We weren't like we were not even close. But they're talking about the best films of the year with Clint, and they're like, what do you think the best film is? And, of course, they're talking about the nominees. He goes, The Notebook. It's the best film by far, best film I've seen in a few years. And the guy was like, oh, come on, get out of here. He's come on, nothing. That's the best film. Wow. And after that, they picked that up. Everybody ran with it, and we got a little jock from it. So, and God bless him. You know, God bless you, Clint. You know, be sweet about a film like that. 
Yeah, well, and he's, I mean, he he's done some thrillers over the years, and he's obviously, you know, a Western guy from a long time ago. But as he matured and as a filmmaker, Bridges of Madison County, you know, he has that sensibility for romance. And I think what The Notebook did was it really made romance movies kind of, and this was like an epic drama, as, as I viewed it. I mean, it, it spanned over many years, and um, but it really made romance movies accessible to all ages. And that's what was so remarkable when I was observing my kids getting excited about, I mean, they were teenagers at the time, young, young teenagers, uh, getting excited about The Notebook. And then I'm, it's a movie that I can watch with them. Well, I appreciate it. You know, like, it's weird because I'm like a big tattooed, kind of like weird, rough and tumble guy. But, uh, you know, I think no matter who we are, at least me, I believe in apple pie. I believe in like true love. I believe in like, one person and like men being men and girls being girls and like, you know, fulfilling the promises of love. And I think that's dope. Everybody's far too cool to make a movie like that. But underneath it all, there's some cool, there's some real cool shit that, uh, that the movie represents. So let's go back to the, your acting days. And I know you're not done acting, but you know, your early acting days in the eighties, starting with the Wraith. And I watched this film recently and, um, I, I was struck by how it is a cult classic. I mean, this is something that I never saw at the time. And I think that's sort of one of the foundations of any cult classic movie is that nobody you know, didn't have a big audience at, at the time, but, but later on it becomes something completely different than what maybe the director intended it to be. When you got involved with that, that project, what did you understand the movie to be and, and what type of impact it would have on, on 80s culture? I, I swear to God, I never thought about that. Like, uh, it was kind of the big hotshot movie to get. Like, everybody wanted to get in that movie. And, you know, back then we were, like, in auditioning three, four times a day, just going around trying to get jobs. This was a very, very prestigious at the time, like, job to get. And uh, I was delighted. Uh, the director was – I'm still friends with the director to this day. He's one of my closest friends, uh, Mike Marvin. And it was weird because – you know, Charlie was on the movie and Matt Barry was on the movie and Dave Sherrill and Jamie Bozian, and Chris Nash and all these guys that I'm friends with, Clint Howard, to this day, you know, we became very, very close on this movie. And what happened was nobody thought it was like campy and cultish when we were doing it. We all thought we were like playing it straight. But as the movie turned out, it became, uh, you know, it became very stylized. And when it came out, it was considered like, a little too stylized and then later on you know in bob's drive-in or whatever and all these kind of other shows they they went back and in nostalgia looked at it and everybody likes the film yeah but, uh, I, I i look back at my performance and kind of cringe <laughs> well i mean it is it's it's that's what's so great about it too is that there's there's some cringe worthy aspects to the film including the clothes but that's just part of the that's just the era Nobody escaped the 80s, brother. No, no. <laughs> I was there too. And, uh, you know, I was taking notes, getting ready for this interview. And one of the things I wrote down was through line. And I listed all of the actors that I would see pop up in project after project that you were involved in, even if you weren't directing the film. Yep. But, you know, Clint Howard is one of those people. Love him. Yeah. And, and there's just like, let me, let me find the, um, the list that I wrote down here. Okay. Clint Howard. Harry Dean Stanton, yeah. uh, David Thornton. One of my dearest friends in the world. I miss him. 
and and Chris Kincaid, obviously. The greatest. And and it's so cool to to look at a filmography and see that there's a circle of people that love each other, basically. And they're there because they trust each other. I mean, I, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but this is what I'm getting from your filmography is that you have this inner circle of people that you enjoy working with. And Clint Howard must be one of them because he shows up in a lot of your films. Did you intentionally make that happen as a, as a filmmaker? Is like, hey, you know what? I'm going to write this part for Clint or Chris or David. Or did it happen less intentionally and, and subconsciously? It's, it's less intentional. It's, it's more along the lines of, oh, God, I have a really tough part. This is going to be this. This is I'm dead. I don't know if I like, oh, shoot, I know. I'll put Chris Kincaid in it. I'll be fine. Or like, oh, shit, this is Dave Thornton. He'll crush this, you know. And uh, right. for me, having actors that are wonderful character actors that turn your okay words good and your good words great is real currency real, real currency. And uh, I don't mean to talk about people in, in such a crude way, but it's the way you look at it when you direct. You're like, you want your stuff to be real and, you know, jump off the page and uh, be exciting for people to watch or at least interesting. That's the beauty of great acting. They just, they just make stuff so much better. And it's just, a, it's, it's weird because there's no real formula for how they do it. It just, it's just their true innate talent. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy. Just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks. And now back to the interview. How did you get involved in the Alpha Dog Project? I, I watched that movie last night, and it, I think the last time I saw it was when it came out. Right. And it was... How did it hold up? I haven't seen it for a while. Oh, it holds up well. I mean, it's so intense. And, and I think what I noticed about it today as, as a parent with kids that age, it was even more intense watching it now because it's like you're watching this you know, fucking train wreck about to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just crazy. And it's a true story too. So that even makes it more horrifying. But how did you find the, the project? My kids, my two oldest kids, my oldest kid, Gina, was, uh, they went to school with these guys. She knew Hollywood. She, Jesse James Hollywood was the guy and she knew that those people. And my younger of the two older daughters, Sasha, was in the same grade as Ben Markowitz, who was played by Anton Yelchin. Not Ben Markowitz, uh, Nikki Markowitz, who was played by Anton Yelchin. So when that went down, I heard about it. And then I kept, I'm living in Woodland Hills, and, and this kid, Hollywood, who was the one that ordered the murder in the, in the, in the movie, went on the lamb, was out of the country or was someplace, but he became urban legend. All the kids would come over and say, I saw him at the comments. And the other one's like, I hear he's over in this. And I hear, I was like, all right, hold on. What the hell is going on? Tell me this fucking story because <laughs> I got to hear it. So they told me, and as you could probably would understand, it's an open investigation. One guy's out of the country and missing. The rest of the kids are in jail, one facing death penalty. And the worst one is the kid that got killed. Nobody wants to talk to me. It's an open investigation. 
they, they think that how can you be like sensationalizing this? You're making money off that. I was like, let me just get to the bottom of the story. And I'd go around and I'd tell them like, hey, guys, I'm making the movie. Like you can either talk to me or I can make it up. And one of the two. And one by one, people would call me and everybody's story was different. I mean, 100%. They were like all kind of like building the story that there was no responsibility to them and everybody else did everything. And then my researcher, Mick Mijas, and I went up to Santa Barbara, which is where, where the murder really happened. And we talked to this DA up there and we noticed, gosh, I hope he's not still working there. He was a bit of an alcoholic and he would be, and so we couldn't get to the information we wanted and he'd be dealing it out. So we kind of kept talking right around lunchtime and he started getting squirrely and squirrely and squirrely. And finally he goes, you know what, all the stuff's in there. Just, I'll be back for lunch. Don't take anything, blah, blah, blah. Like just go in and look at what you need, which was a complete violation of the law. And we went in and we saw everything from the autopsy photos to the, you know, the arrest reports to everybody's interviews and stuff like that. So we had a real good idea of what really happened. And that, building it on to people. The reason I took the interviewer kind of uh, convention is kind of that was my experience. I would go and I would interview these people and they'd start talking to me and I'd get information in bits and pieces. And finally, uh, Hollywood's dad, Jack Hollywood, who is, he, you know, he does what he does for, you know, his line of work, but he's a great guy. And I wouldn't have talked to me if my kid was missing. He talked to me and between them. I really never did get a lot of permission from the Markowitzes. They were very emotional and reasonably so. I mean, you know, understandably so. They never really fully trusted my motives. But, you know, I spoke to, to them a lot and tried to, like, you know, assuage their fears. And I think that I represented their son, and if it wasn't a 100% accurate way, but a sympathetic way and the, the best I could. And, uh, that's uh, kind of how that happened. So there was no original work to adapt. I mean, this is an original screenplay then. Oh, that was full from, uh, it was based on um, the weirdest part. Okay, so we're making the movie, right? So I write the script and it's kind of a tailor-made script. The kid dies, uh, the other kids get arrested, the one kid disappears and by the way, we never saw him again. Good night, folks. Drive home safe, you know? <laughs> we're shooting the movie and we have to shoot with a break over Christmas. It's one of those kind. During the Christmas break, my kids call me and go, look on CNN. They've arrested the kid. So now my story is completely different. I have to rewrite the ending of the story like that. Everyone's like, well, that's going to cost money. When I have a big fight. It, was, it just was, it was a nightmare. But, uh, you know, it was a weird movie. The, the kid actually got caught, maybe even partly because of the movie. Oh, because of all the attention that was being placed on the, the story at the time during your, your filmmaking process. Huh? Uh, well, it was awful. I never, I didn't, I, I didn't root for the kid to get caught, you know, and I understand that, you know, he did something wrong and I went to the trial and the kid looks at me and he's like, like, I'm like, dude, you're in jail, shut up. But, you know, it wasn't my intention to get him caught. I feel horrible for the dad. I feel, you know, kind of the opposite for the, the parents of the, the their child was murdered. It's just a tough, it's just tough, man. But what was interesting to know for me is like, there's all these little kids, little spoiled little shithead kids. They're not tough, but they want to act tough. And yeah. uh, they get themselves in real bad situations and parents ain't paying enough, enough attention. So that's, that's interesting um, that you make that comment about them wanting to be tough, but they're not tough because 
you really captured that with the the young actors um and i forget his name who played uh jesse james hollywood's basically slave who later became the murderer oh sean hattesey one of the greatest actors in the world sean is another one that's in almost every one of my films yeah and i'm looking at this performance and and he's so vulnerable and sad as he's doing all of these things for you know the main antagonist in the film uh, but then flips on a switch and becomes you know a monster at at the end and not to give too much away if, if people haven't seen this film yet but um Here, let me give it to you the kid dies okay <laughs> okay there's the spoiler the main spoiler um but th- that's something that when you're not working from an original work to adapt you, that that's your decision as a storyteller to capture and is that something that you got through the interviews or is that a, just a choice you made to make it more, well, just, just to make it a better story? Well, both. I mean, we had a lot of information through our kind of resources and we went up to see this, this the kids was Ryan Hoyt. He's in jail. We went to see, Oh, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not thinking of the right kid. No, Ryan Hoyt was the, I'd never saw him. I saw a different kid, Jesse Ruby, but I guess then I didn't, I didn't meet the kid, but it was how he was described in the overwhelming uh, majority of the information that I had. So, you know, that's what you do when you write something. Like, like I, I just wrote a story about Customato and Mike Tyson. And they're like, did Mike really say that? I'm like, no, I didn't know what Mike says. Nobody knows. Like, only Mike. And he probably doesn't remember what he said there. You just know that they were there, so your experiences. Well, this happened, so it would be reasonable to think that maybe they were thinking something like this. But a lot of the time, you're just making you know really good, educated guesses. Yeah, and your writing process. Can you tell us about that in terms of um, what a day looks like for you when you are deep into, you know, whether you're writing Blow, um, which I watched the other night for the second or third time. Another highly rewatchable movie. I love that film uh, with with Johnny Depp, but. You know, you, you, you know that you're going to write this film and whether you have a deadline or not, what does that writing process look like for you, day in the life of Nick Cassavetes? Well, two different things. Blow happened to be the first time I ever got hired to write anything. It was uh, Mike DeLuca and Teddy Demi and I were kind of three guys that used to go out and raise a lot of hell together. And Mike suddenly got promoted to head of New Line and because he had done so well for Bob Sherry. And he calls me and he says, hey, can you write? And I'm like, uh, I wrote one thing before, but it was like kind of an exercise. He goes, well, I think, can you do it? Because I think I can get you 250. What did you say to me? <laughs> he says, can you do it? I said, fucking figure it out, you know? And I'm so stupid. There's a book, right? There's a book about basically the wild times of George John. It was kind of like, how is the best way to put it? It just sucked. And, but it had some factual stuff in there. And he said, he gave me an office. Now it was in the Melrose Triangle and I'm so stupid back then. I don't know that I'm allowed to order furniture in the office. And I didn't have any money to get my own furniture in there. So basically I sat in there on the carpet and like, it was a kind of a cool uh, thing to write. I had met, what happened was, Teddy said, I want to do this movie, Nick. you got to write it. I want Johnny to be in the movie. I introduced him to Johnny, and he took me to see George John. And I met George, and he was up in Otisville, New York. It's an FCI up there. And I 
talk to him and George is kind of like, George and I, we miss, I love George, but he doesn't uh, fully appreciate me and whatever. We're just not the same type of people. And he was in the point of first time I, I talked to him, he was like, I got lots of money here. You got to get me out of here. This thing is all bullshit like this. Just basic con artist shit. Right. And then I went back the next day and Teddy's like, how's it going? I'm like, yeah, you know, I want the 250. I don't know what I'm doing. Whatever. <laughs> and then the third day we started talking about his daughter. He said, oh, my daughter never comes to see me. I said, the daughter that you sold the car for to get a thing where you were free and clear and now you're in jail for 20 years. And she said, yeah, she hates me. I'm like, okay, I got two daughters. I know how to write this thing. So that became like the fulcrum of the story of what I wanted to build out. Nobody knew it. I wrote the thing, one pass, turned it in, I didn't hear nothing. Now you understand Teddy and Mike are like my two best friends. Nothing. Six weeks goes by. I'm sitting in that fucking office like I'm a fraud. This is over. I hope I can still get paid. I don't know what, I just didn't know the things that were going to happen to me. All I knew that is like that part of my life was over. Finally, Teddy calls me. He goes, I just read it. It's the greatest thing I've ever read. It's the best first draft I've ever read. I said, Teddy, what the fuck is the matter with you? He goes, I've been busy. I'm like, you motherfucker. Like this, Galuka calls me right after. I go, I couldn't call if he didn't call. So they decided to make the movie. And uh, God bless Teddy. He was another guy that had a lot of magic to him, you know, just magic to him. He was full of shit in a lot of different ways. And, you know, we were best friends. But uh, he really was able to capture the spirit of fun. George Jung. And I think that's what made the film so successful. Yeah. What was it like to watch the film, not being part of the, the shooting process, just, just the screenwriter and seeing your work on screen? You know, it's mixed being a writer. The best thing about being a writer is it's the only job I've ever had, or I even know of where, you know, like, let's just say you, you somebody owed you a thousand dollars. He's comes over and gives you in like $5 bills. You don't need $5 bills. You need a hundred. So there's always something weird. Like nothing ever happens a hundred percent right. Once. But when you write, everybody does exactly what the fuck they should. So it's a very satisfying experience. So as filmmaking is an interpretive art that directors do and actors do and they're supposed to come and interpret it the way they are. They pick the parts they connect to. They change the part that they don't connect to. And so when I watched it, it's a mixed bag. Some of the parts are much better than the script. Some of the parts, ugh, I wish that they, they lean on that a little bit more. But all in all, it's a, a generational type of film. Johnny was spectacular. Penny was spectacular. Uh, Ethan Suplee was spectacular. The whole thing was just it was a celebration and it, it worked real well for Teddy and I was so happy for him. Yeah. I mean, I, I think those, those types of movies and, and Narcos is another example. I don't know if you've seen that on Netflix, but the Narcos series, there's something so fascinating about that world. It, it's so exotic and kind of exciting at the same time. And it, and it puts you, I know Jean-Luc Godard talked about the power of the false where, and for instance, Tony Soprano, is someone who is a despicable character, but you love the guy. And it's, it really puts the audience in a, in a conflicting situation where you're like. David Chase is probably the smartest. That's, I think that's the greatest television show of all time, The Sopranos. If not, it's up there. But the genius of that show is, no matter how big and bad a motherfucker you are, I hope I can swear on the show because I've been swearing more and more. You're not a big shot when you go home. You're not a big shot at home. You just get the shit kicked out of you at home. Like your family doesn't think so. Everybody could relate to it. Right. Yeah. Cause Carmela 
you know, everybody knew who was the boss at, at home with the Sopranos. And the kids didn't think he was anything. And it just, it, it, it really reflected kind of, it was a great dialectic of violence versus just, you know, home. Yeah, and, and I think you really captured it with Johnny Depp too. I mean, there's the, there's this vulnerability of the family man and the juxtaposition between his, you know, him as a family man and him as this big shot, you know, drug dealer is supposed to be scary. And it's those, those, I don't know, I'm just a sucker for that type of narrative. And you just did such a great job with it. Are you, are you being asked to write screenplays currently? I mean, is that something that people are seeking you out for because of blow and other projects? Yeah. I think that's what kind of how I make my living. You know, I, I, I make a movie once in a while when they let me. And, uh, but most of the time I'm, I'm writing original stuff or adapting some stuff. Now the movie, she's, uh, she's so lovely with James Gandolfini speaking of the uh, Sopranos that was pre Sopranos, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. So what did you notice in, in that actor, James Gandolfini, very special man, you know, we all miss him, but what did you notice in him when you were making that film? if anything, that maybe gave you a glimpse into what he was capable of in projects like The Sopranos? Well, Jimmy was a friend, you know, or, or we were very friendly. And so we knew each other, not professionally. He's a very private person. And I really liked the way he thought. He doesn't think like me, so I don't like it that much. But I liked that it was individual. And you could see that he was reflective, and he definitely was considerate of everything that he had to do. And I mean that in the right, the most best possible way. And he always had a clear thought process, which made him great. And I mean, we used to joke around after he does the Soprano. He's like, when are we working again? I'm like, fuck you. You're Tony Soprano. Your career is over. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't. If you look at the film, like the drop, I mean, he just is magnificent, magnificent talent. And, Honest, you know, just honest. You know, there's a rumor about, I don't know this this happened, but I heard it happen, and I heard it from a pretty good source. Like, you get in a situation where there's a scene with two people and neither one of them back down, and then you play the scene out, and the director always like, and then you say this, and then you say this, but really in life, if there's two guys that don't, you know, back down, it's going to come out in a lot of different type of ways. And they were doing a film called Crimson Tide, and it was Gandolfini's first day with Denzel, and they had an argument and I've worked with both of those guys and I know them and uh, they're very authentic. And I heard the first day it was just a fucking fist bite, just pulling motherfuckers apart, like really going at it. <laughs> and both of them have two brains. One of them is like, I hate that motherfucker. And the other one is like, that guy's a good actor. You know, that's what we're supposed to do. And they resolved it. they squashed it and they went back and, uh, and uh, did the film, which uh, was a good film. And, but I, I, you know, it's that process that, that makes those two guys special. And speaking of She's So Lovely, that, that was um, an original screenplay by your dad, John, right? It was. It was a, a shorter type of piece of material. And here's the thing. Like, I had, was off doing my own thing. You know, I, I never wanted to be John Cassavetes. That's the last thing in the world I ever wanted to be. I wanted some new, I wanted some new clothes, you know. And uh, but, so I did my first film. And even before I did my first film, Sean Penn and my dad had talked about developing it into a movie, but dad was sick at the time. And dad talked about a lot of things and Sean loved my dad. And 
after my first film came out, the producers were like, why don't we do that film? And uh, I said, well, I don't know. They said, well, we'll do it right away. I said, well, let me, uh, let me talk to Sean. Sean, he wanted to do it, but he didn't know who I was. He loved my dad. He didn't love me. There's the old, the old adage, Cassavetes, great last name, bad first name, Nick. You know, if you have John, it's good. Nick, not as good. <laughs> but uh, you're not like John at all. You're like Ashby. I said, well, Ashby's my favorite filmmaker. So, hey, there you go. Correct. That's great. And we got along good. And I initially had had Patty Arquette playing Robin's role. And he wanted Robin to play it. And uh, so did the producers. And I had to tell poor Patty she didn't have the part. She hated me for years afterwards. But Robin came on. And then... So you have a part, you have a movie about two people that fall in love, they're crazy, all they do is drink, and then one guy does something really bad and he's kind of mentally unstable. He goes away for 10 years and he thinks he's been gone a week and he goes back to like find his girl, but she's married and he's got three kids. So it's kind of a, basically in film speak, it's a, it's a love triangle. But everybody knows Sean and Robin are married and everybody knows Sean's the biggest actor in the world at that time. And like, who the hell is going to be like, Oh, I wonder who she chooses. Who, who's that actor that makes you have that, any of that? Kind of thing. Right. So they wanted me to hire Bruno Kirby, but then they were going to like, I was like, no. And then Kevin Spacey was talked about, but they were going to do that David Ray thing after that. And then John Travolta became available because he was doing the Polanski film and they had had a falling out. So I knew Travolta's assistant, because I went to the agent, they're like, no, 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 John Travolta, that's no, he's a, he is on a big comeback now, he's not going to play second fiddle to Sean Penn in any fucking movie, but I knew the assistant, I called her and I said, if I get you a script, will you put it on his reading list, you know, even though the agent told me to fuck off, she's like, sure, I'll do that, I said, okay, and I literally drove to the Palisades and threw a script over a fence, not knowing where it would land or anything like that. <laughs> So back then, I'm a young kid. We have a bunch of like stupid wise guy friends. A couple of days later, I got a phone call. Hi, Nick, it's John Travolta. I love your script. I'm like, fuck you, Spooty, you <laughs> fucking moron. Stop bullshitting me. He goes, no, really, it's John. I'm like, if you don't fucking stop, I'm going to fucking it was. And he said, would you meet? I really would like to do your movie. I'm like, really? He goes, yes, would you meet me at the peninsula? And we'll talk about it. I said, sure. We go to the peninsula. John's amazing. He talks about it. It's talking about like how he just didn't like to be like Polanski would give him line readings and he couldn't work like that. And he was like this. I said, there's never going to be any line readings here. No chance. Everything is going to be perfect. He goes, all right, then I'm in. And then we started, we had a meal and he said, do you think we could have a reading? Fuck. I just went from having him in my movie to like doing a reading to see if he's going to be in. I'm like, eh, of course. I said, he said, when? I said, tomorrow at one o'clock. I said, great. Now, Oh, God, this story is bad. Um, now I'm sitting in my office. It's like 1130. Going to be reading at one. You know, how like you're a director. You want to make sure everything is going to go well and it's all going to be right. Uh, I get a call. I pick it up. It's Robin. They're having, she and Sean are having a fight. And I hear Sean like, fuck you. Fuck oh, you. Fuck oh, you. No. I quit the movie. Because I quit the fucking movie like this. Like, what's going on, Sean? This motherfucking bitch. She's trying to find out my. I said, I understand, I understand. All of a sudden, click. I won't go into the producer's office. I said, um, I think we might have a problem. And they said, what's happening? I told them, they said, what are we going to do? They're French. I said, I don't know. You get another phone call. 
good, more of the same like this. Finally, I, I'll leave out all the, the good parts, but finally I get Robin on the phone. I said, Robin, I got an actor coming in here at one fucking o'clock. I'm your director. You and Sean, get your asses down here. Click. And I hung up on them. And now <laughs> the producers are in the room. They're like, w w what does that mean? I'm like, I really don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> just, so now it's like 20 to one. And I'm like, what do I say to Travolta when he comes in? Just then, I don't know, should they say, you say, John, we are so happy to see you. We are very happy to have you on the film. You're going to be wonderful. Travolta walks in 15 minutes early. <sighs> I say, John, it's really nice to have you. You're going to be so wonderful in this film like this. He goes, where's everybody? Am I early? I'm like, yeah, you're just a, it's a little bit early. Let's get a cup of coffee. So we go downstairs and walk. And we start walking in a direction. I know there's no coffee places in this direction, but we just start walking. He looks around and goes, where the fuck are we? I said, oh, it's the other way, man. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So we go walk, go walk, go walk back. By the time we get back, Sean's uh, Grand Prix is like, <laughs> just like you would want Sean Penn to get out of that car, get out with big dark sunglasses, hurt too. They walk up, Sean, his bullshit fucking Hollywood thing, like, John, how are you? They're like, yeah, what's up? Robin breezes me going, I'm still not doing your fucking movie. They walk. <laughs> oh, God. Jeez. So you get in there and they read. Of course, it's magical. John finishes. He goes, how was I? Sean, God bless me. He goes, you were fabulous. He goes, then I'm in. Like, we're all, all is happy. Robin's looking at me like, I'm like, but it all, it all worked out. And that's how we got uh, John. Well, it sounds like Sean and, and Robin's relationship off screen really kind of prepared them for their relationship on screen with that, that film. I mean, it was, that was the dynamic. I don't know if that's fair. I, I think that if you do movies about drunks, you're, you're going to have a lot of drinking for a while. Right. You know, you do movies about killer, you're going to have a lot of dark thoughts while you're doing it. You know, it just right. goes with the, with the thing. Sean, in my opinion, for a period of time, there's no one in American history of cinema that could touch him. Right. He's just on another level. And, you know, he could be a giant pain in the ass, and I'm sure he'd say the same thing about me. But you don't make movies to make friends. And his performance in that particular film, and we were very close up during the filming of that, was, it was just supersonic. There's nobody in the world could have given that performance. Nobody, nobody, nobody. And uh, I, uh, I just think he needs to be looked back upon for what he is. And that's like really the father of modern American acting. He's just that good. Yeah. Yeah. Le he, he's legendary. And it, I, I have two, um, two, final questions about this film this particular film i i was looking at a youtube clip of you talking about actually no it was um you on entourage talking about the scene where sean jumps through the window so just for my my listeners uh nick appeared as himself in a couple of episodes of the hbo series entourage and and so in one of these scenes you're talking about sean penn insisting that he jumped through a real plate glass window with no stuntman. Did that really, was, is that a, an accurate description? A little different than what it was in Entourage, but they, there's a scene where Sean goes crazy and he jumps through the window. And uh, they had built a, uh, a fake glass window, but it wasn't candy glass. It's not the kind that shatters in a million pieces in a safe. It's the kind that's fake. Uh, it's, I think it's, uh, it, it's a fake, but still, there can be pieces that can cut you and you can get hurt. Right. 
And John said, I'm jumping through the window. And I said, actually, the insurance says that they can. He goes, no, let, let, let me explain it to you another way. And so you can deliver this message. I don't think I want to do the movie if I can't jump through the, the window. Hmm. I'll let you guys just decide what, what you want to do because I'm pretty <laughs> sure about that. So I went to the producers and they're like, no, it's insurance. It's impossible. And Sean said, okay. And uh, got in his car and they're like, no, no, you know what? You, we've thought it over and you can jump through the window. <laughs> but they took a big risk. They were French. They took a big risk because if he had gotten hurt, it would have been really bad. And thank God nobody got hurt. Let's like, by the way, Young directors out there, that's irresponsible filmmaking. You shouldn't do it. I did not know what I was doing back then. I was too <laughs> young and stupid. But, uh, uh, yeah, anytime anybody gets hurt on anybody's show, it's the director's fault, period. Yeah. So uh, I don't advise it, but he jumped through it. He had a couple little cuts and bruises, but, you know, he was very happy about it. And, you know, I think that we developed a, had a little bit of trust at, at that particular moment. And, uh, it worked for the film and the the ending of the film it definitely and i, I don't want to give away too much in, in case somebody wants to go back and, and watch the this film um because it, it really is worth going back and and renting or, or purchasing uh it's available on itunes and amazon were you getting any pushback from producers or from test audiences about the ending which is definitely an art house cinema ending well I was sensitive to the ending because that's what like dad, when he gave the script and it was like a 28 page script. And then I wrote the script. I, I wrote it out to be a hundred page script. And I think I, I knew dad well enough to copy his style and his intention pretty good. So, but the end was definitely always John's, you know? Yeah. We had a French producers, but we were distributed by Miramax back then and Harvey and Harvey Weinstein I'll say this about him, you know, he got a lot of problems now and uh, deservedly so. And he was a real cocksucker to me, but he loves movies and he was, and he, I'll give him credit for like, he loved movies and he put a lot of movies out and, and he actually was smart about some of them, but he wasn't smart about this film. And he thought this film was a comedy. He wanted it to be a romantic comedy. And he got into Sean Penn's head, like Nick doesn't know what he's doing, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, didn't help when we went to a test screening and I had never been to a test screening before and we tested the movie and we got like a 17 and I was delighted. I'm like, I can't believe 17% of the people like this film. It's so dope, but they were not amused. And he convinced Sean to recut the film to try to make it a little bit more comedic and put funny music in it. And I, I just hated it, but uh, it was nothing I could do. I wasn't the most powerful person in the scenario. And uh, the the French producer let him do it and then died a few years later. And I really never got a chance. I was so pissed. I never got a chance to tell him that I forgave him. And, you know, it's just a movie. So what? But I think you were talking about just the end of the movie. Yeah, just the pushback that because I, I mean, just as a as an audience member who is looking for a payoff at the end, that is kind of your traditional three act structure, conflict resolution at the end. You know, it gives you the art house ending. It doesn't give you the the Hollywood ending. I don't think it's art house, man. I think like it's authentic. Right. If you love somebody more than you love somebody else, it don't matter if you have three kids of them. Right. You leave. 
like this. And like, I had people stand up and test uh, like focus groups and say, this would never happen. A woman would never leave her children. And I said, lady, people kill their kids. What the hell are you talking about? You know, like, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. You go with the one that you love. And that was, remember I said, we have point of views for the film. Yeah. And so another ending was impossible. If that is the POV for the film, you have to go back and reconceive the whole film. Right. There is another version of that film where she says she does something reasonable or the guy dies or something, you know, traditional, like, like some bullshit Hollywood ending. But really the traditional ending is she loves the first guy and she goes with him. Years later, I would make a movie called The Notebook and it was the same dynamic. Noah and, uh, and Allie, and then there was James Marsden who came in, who was rich, a super nice dude, who loved her just as much as Noah did, I think. And she chose Noah, why? Because he got there first. Hmm. Your first love is the best love. It's the one you make all your promises to. And if you make some promises to a second love, they're real, but they don't trump the first love. You still have those outlying promises there, no matter how much you know, you've wrapped that up. So that was the reason that when, when uh, Ray said, why do I go with him and said the other one? I said, he got there first, you know, not to mention he has more screen time and every the audience wants him to go with, uh, with them. But I think that that ending is absolutely great. The problem I have with that film, it's my own film, is that like when they're fighting on the grass and there's funny music and everyone's going, isn't this cute? It just drove me fucking nuts. I, uh, it was a different cut. I had a lot of, it was a lot, I thought it was a lot slicker, my version, and Harvey promised that I would have a cut, and then he, he what you call it, uh, backed out on that too. So I did, you know, I, it's interesting because I, I did notice that discontinuity a little bit, or in, incongruity is what I would call it, in that scene, because it's high drama, and, you know, it is the very moment when she's leaving everything behind. And it does kind of get a little bit comedic, you know? So, but that that was Harvey Weinstein's contribution or. That was Harvey Weinstein and as done by Sean Penn. Yeah. And you know what? I don't think anybody goes in thinking, let's fuck the film up. And I'm sure that it's my second film and everybody thought we can't trust Nick. He just got a 17 on his test screening. But they were messing with a film, which is still the last movie by John Cassavetes. You know, and they should have they should have treated it better and trusted me. And that's my opinion and everything and every it's all opinion right there. But you know, parts of the movie were phenomenal. Uh Sean's performance was phenomenal. Agreed. Robin's too. You know, I mean like it, it it's just a supersonically good film. It's too bad it got screwed up by people that I don't think they had bad attentions, but they got they had a different point of view than me and they didn't realize that you can't mix point of views. So are you able to go back in and do a director's cut of, of, of any kind or, or legally are you prevented from doing that? I actually legally am. He's mandated to give it to me, but he never did. And that, that's cut, that's cut on that's film and I can't get to the film. So no one's ever allowed me to do it. I wanted to do it as like a, it was 97 and 2017. I wanted to do a 20 year version. They were like, no, no, it's like, you know, right. But, uh, huh. you know, it's hard to get to Harvey right now. So there you go. Yeah. Well, um, now in terms of your character acting there, there's a couple of performances that I wanted to ask you about. One 
your performance in Face Off with Nick Cage and John Travolta, uh, Dietrich Hassler, classic. I mean, just just a classic character acting experience, I would imagine. And and also Tattoo Joe in Hangover Two. Mm-hmm. Um, how did those? How did you find those parts, or how did they find you? And what do you get from those experiences in terms of, you know, your your professional aspirations? Is this are these just fun little things to do to kind of kill time, or are you are you really seeking out these types of professional experiences to round out your whole career? Um, it's a complicated question. Back then, both of those parts came off uh, very accidentally. I couldn't get a hold of. Travolta to do the ADR I needed him to do on, on She's So Lovely. And I couldn't find him and find him. And finally, I found out he was on set. And I was, so was going to go talk to him in person. So I showed up on Boo's set. And John saw me. He said, oh, you're fantastic. You'll be in the movie. Like, I'm like, no, man, I just have to talk to John. And he was <laughs> like, no, you're a genius. I would need you in the movie. I'm like, no, man. I, and so he finally, John said, come on, be in the movie. I'll do your ADR. I said, all right, all right, I'll be in the movie. I thought I was going to be in for a day. And I was in for a lot longer than that. And the part was being Travolta slash Cage's best friend as a criminal. And that wasn't a big stretch for me. His, <laughs> whole, his whole character arc was that he hated cops. You know, wow, that was, a, that was not a hard, that wasn't a stretch. And uh, it, was a, it was a fun performance. And, you know, I shaved my head and they put, you know, I've never been in a film where they had so much money to spend and put you in wardrobe. And I was like, hey, I need a blank eye. And they're like, cool, I need a neck. Thing that okay, cool. They just let me do whatever I wanted to do, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. It was very strange. It's kind of like John said about my old man had a, a movie he did called Dirty Dozen, and uh, back then, you know, they had Charlie Bronson and Lee Marvin and Jim Brown and Telly, and they had just everybody in the movie. And Dad got cast in the movie, and he had like one line, but he loved Bob Aldrich, who was the director, and I love John Woo, and. Uh, there would always be some sneaky little fucking shithead thing to do. And, it, and I'll just say, who's going to do it? And all those guys are protecting their careers going, no, 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 not me, not me, not me, Jonathan. I'll do it. And pretty soon he had the whole fucking movie. got nominated for a, the Best Supporting Actor in the movie. Yeah. Uh, just by doing all of the shit that everybody else didn't want to do. And again, John just kept giving me stuff to do and giving me stuff to do. And it was a lot of fun. The, uh, the other movie uh, was a, a lot simpler. Hangover 2? Hangover 2, which called it Liam, was unavailable to do some additional shooting that Todd, who's a buddy. So, so Todd, yeah, you cut out a little bit. You said Todd had asked uh, you to do it? Uh, yeah, the Phillips, the director, asked me yeah. to do it. Mm-hmm. He said, I, I, I said, Todd, are you, are you serious? You, you really think the audience is going to be delighted to lose Liam Neeson and get me? He goes, no, it's going to be fine, whatever. This and that. I was like, okay. And, you know, I look like a tattoo guy, whatever. Uh, the rest of the movie shot in Thailand, I shot it in like Burbank on, the, on a soundstage <laughs> in Burbank. And uh, Todd's very clear about what he wants. He's a genius. I think he's going to probably, when it's all said and done, you know, rewrite the books. He really wants to be a, a director for the ages. And I think he's on his way. I thought the, the Joker probably was the best film of last year. It was just, just ridiculous what he does. But he was very clear with me. I want you to do this, this. It was the easiest acting job of all time. I was in and out in like an hour. Well, that, that performance, um, even though it was short, short-lived, and I've seen that, I've seen the whole 
hangover series probably 10 times. And I'm not exaggerating. It's one of my favorite comedic um, trilogies. But your performance is just so classic because you're, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're capturing the tattoo, the, the sort of the, the trope of the, the tattoo artist perfectly, but you're also taking it to a very unique level where you're, you're giving a tattoo to a, a kid <laughs> in this tattoo parlor and talking so matter-of-factly about all these horrific things that the characters were doing the night before. I just, when I go back and watch that movie and, and especially that scene, it just, I think you're right. Todd Phillips is a freaking genius. By the way, when you got the words that you got Todd Phillips words, just say them. They're going to feel they're going to be fine. Right. If you get the Todd Phillips words out of your mouth, you're golden. Yeah. And I think there's some, I've heard that the reason comics make such good dramatic actors and they get nominated a lot for awards for their dramatic parts is because I, I think comedy is probably one of the more difficult things to do. So if you can pull that off, I think you can, you can pull up straight drama pretty easily. And same thing with Todd Phillips going from the Hangover series to the Joker. I mean, how masterful that was, that, that Joker film. Uh, I'm sure that his chops, you know, sort of honing his skills in the, the comedy world helped him do that. I, I don't know. I just, I, when I saw it, I was shocked. I, I called up Todd. I said, best film of the fucking year, dude. And he's like, Nick, you know, like, we got there and I, I talked to uh, Joaquin and we're like kind of dead. We're like in a fucking Marvel movie, you know, and we're kind of just dead. And we just kind of thought to each other, well, fuck it. Why don't we just go for it and whatever happens, whatever happens. And I understood what he said because when you're dead, sometimes you just, just commit and you're, and you know, that movie is nothing without, Joaquin's dancing in it and Todd's encouragement and the way his body moves and all those weird things. Like you look at that movie, it's very simple, but it's just executed. There's nobody could have made that movie. Only Todd could have made that movie that way. And only Joaquin could have given that performance. So kudos to them. Yeah. So what are some current projects that you're working on that you're excited about? You talked about the Mike Tyson project. Yep, I'm doing that movie with Tony Hopkins playing custom auto. And uh, I'm very excited about that. Uh, I have uh, a film that uh, I'm doing that uh, is about Philadelphia criminals and uh, in Kensington that, you know, it's Bob De Niro and, uh, and a lot of different great people are going to be doing. And uh, I'm super excited about that. I can't believe they're going to let me make that movie. It's phenomenal. I've got a bunch of stuff in the, in the cooker. We'll see what happens. Uh, is it most of it directing or is it writing and directing? The Bob movie has already been written. I'm just kind of working on it with a guy who's a wonderful writer named Anthony Thorne. The other movie I, I wrote myself. But I'm always writing, you know? You get up every day, you can always be creative. Yeah, and not to get to, to geek out too much on software and, and that type of thing, but what, what program are you using? Are you still using a, a shorthand assist to write screenplays? It's final draft. It's the easiest one. Uh, I, I love it. But, uh, you know, when I first started, we wrote on typewriters with a lot of whiteout. Yeah. And the margins weren't set. So, like, you know, anything that lets it come out easy. You know, the writing experience is you get an idea. I still have a pen and paper next to my computer because sometimes it's faster just to get the thing out. 
so many great ideas are lost between your head and getting them down. They you just are thinking about 15 things at one time. They just spill, you know, you always can go back in and type them and make them sound important and brilliant and whatever. But, uh, yeah, final draft is a great, great, uh, software for writing scripts. And if, if people are looking for you online and on social media, where, where can they find you? Well, I don't do Facebook because I don't really have any opinions that I want to share with the world. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm like this. I have a weird site, but it's just my own personal site with my daughters and my girlfriend. But that's Paul underscore Sminus, S-M-E-N-U-S, like small penis kind of sideways. And that's it. I I I don't really go out on Twitter or do any of that kind of stuff. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing these projects that you're currently working on. And, and I want to just thank you so much for taking the time and getting through these tech issues. And it was frustrating at the beginning and uh, telling us your, your story. Hey, man, I really appreciate you spending the time with me. I, I, I apologize. I'm kind of socially awkward, so I don't really like talking about myself too much. But this was very painless. And uh, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time, and as always, go find your dream path.